This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Ian Clifton, or Harry, as he's better known. Harry, along with his family, run a commercial Angus cattle herd on their 12,000-acre property, Karonga, near Coonabarabran, where he uses Wagyu bulls over his Angus females to create a crossbred, or F1 steer, destined for the Japanese market. In this episode, Harry talks to us about the basis of his operation, his pastures, and how growing slender leaf Ceredella has helped his difficult and less productive soil types pull their weight. Harry also talks about selling Wagyu animals across different seasons and markets in his eight years of experience in the enterprise. You'll also hear Harry discuss the importance of relationships when marketing his animals and how in the Japanese Wagyu market, this means creation of a personal, family-based and often lifelong connection with their buyers. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Officer Rowan Leach sat down with Harry for this chat after a morning out in the paddock collecting some slender leaf Cerradella seed. Harry, welcome to the Seeds for Success podcast. Oh, thank you. Harry, would you mind telling the audience a bit about your farm out here at Karonga? Ah, uh, yes. We've sort of got 12,000 acres, a bit more, over two properties in sort of basalt hill country. It runs onto the back of the Pilica Forest and we run a beef cattle operation with Angus cows joined to Wagyu bulls and over the years we've put a lot of improved pasture in and had quite an extensive fertiliser program. Rowan is here and I'm giving him a bit of a lecture about slender Cerradella. <laughs> That's right, mate. Thanks for outlining that topic. We'll <laughs> jump into that topic a bit more, but just like to know a little bit more about your farm. So you've talked about the Pilliga and your basalt hills. It's pretty diverse soil types here, isn't it? Yes. Sort of where we are, the Warren Bungles are actually a horseshoe and they run around, they start on the western side of Coonabarabin and run around to the eastern side where we are. So it is actually quite steep, rocky hills that take a fair bit of management and are quite rough and it's important that you keep a fair bit of ground cover on these hills, otherwise just the water just runs off into the creek. And then as we meet the Pilica Scrub, which runs back towards the highway, Rocky Glen, if anyone knows the area, sort of turn into loamy, ready soils, then eventually just into raw Pilica sand. That was a quite a low pH, five and a bit sort of thing, you know. We're just driving around this morning and, yeah, it's pretty amazing to see the transition and how quickly it can go. You go from this beautiful, friable black soil to sand within a couple of footsteps, it seems, at times. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you get a lot of sifton bush and wattle grow on that sand, which takes a bit of management. But, you know, it is good country for their yeah, Cerradellas and console love grass and premier digit grass. So you can make it productive. Yeah, it's sort of one of those sort of soil types where you sort of can't run out of money because it just needs constant attention and the basalt sort of country sort of subsidises it a little bit from time to time trying to keep it productive. Yeah, almost hydroponic. What You've got to put every ounce of fertiliser in to get something out. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it just needs a lot of single super. Every three years we try and put single over it and MO super probably every seven or eight years and we've got sort of 
techniques of pulling the sifton bush and wattle down probably every seven or eight years. It's just sort of a constant thing. And look, you know, even that sifton bush is not that bad because it grows up and then you pull it over and then there's a sort of ground cover on the ground. It sort of rots away over the next five or six years. It all sort of helps really. That ageing workforce in rural areas is a bit of a problem, isn't it? It is actually, it is. Look, I've employed a lot of backpackers over the years. You know, over the years we've had some fantastic ones and, and we're still in contact with them all these years later, but they generally stay for three months. But constant retraining young people is hard. Getting older people actually is, uh, you know, I find, is actually quite productive. I've got an older lady on at the moment and she's 74. She came here when she was about 55 or 6, but her and her husband had run their own business. And it's just amazing when someone's run their own business how much they get what you need and don't need to do. I actually think the older generation can actually be more productive and better on your gear and than younger people who just don't have that experience of financial management. They've got a lot of independent thinking as well and it's probably a bit of an art to not over-bossing those sorts of people, like let them do their own thing. Well, I do get in trouble <laughs> for micromanaging from time to time, but I do try to be the bottom of the food chain when you're running the farm. Like, yeah, if you can let them do their thing and... I know they probably don't think so, but I do take on a lot of what they say and their advice and listen to them. And not all their ideas will get legs and fly, but yeah, some of them yeah, think that is a good idea. We're going to do that. You alluded to before that there is some pretty tough soils here and we've been talking this morning about this Coonabarabran region. I'm glad we took your Land Cruiser around this morning because while it is beautiful, there's a fair bit of up and down and creeks and gullies and constant weed spraying is a thing. It sounds like a pretty tough environment at times. Why do you farm here? Well, I often think I would like to ask my grandfather who turned up here in 1920 after the Second World War and of all the land he could have come to, I don't know why he came here. Over time, the Clifton family have learned how to farm this country and be quite profitable. It is a real skill to do and yeah, you do need larger holdings where we live because it's not quite as good, but larger holdings can be very profitable in good years you know you can really punch a lot more income out because you just not don't have the ability to run at maximum speed all the time so when you have the good times you can really put a lot of weight on your cattle and that's just all to the bottom line you know and you tend to not get in trouble with droughts as much because you've got a bigger area and cattle can't walk into every corner but they tend to, in drier times, just go up a few dry gullies and top of hills they wouldn't have otherwise been. And I think, look, we have a very good community. That's a very important. Coonabarabran uh, is sort of just under 3,000 and it's far enough away from sort of Tamworth, Gunnada, Dubbo to sort of be its own independent town. And uh, I speak to a lot of people from bigger regional centres and they say, look, we don't know anyone in our town. So whereas yeah, in Coonabarabran, everyone seems to knock around together, you know, there's no sort of split in the community at all. You mentioned just then that income and, and your cattle, probably a big part of that is your pastures. And I first met you a couple of months ago at a pasture field day when you're very passionate about your pastures and you've said, come out and have a look at my slender leaf Ceredella. So how long have you been growing slender leaf Ceredella for? It was recommended in a mix from Bob Freeburn when we sowed some country wood cleared and some pillica scrub country in probably yeah, early 90s and I'd never heard of it. Anyway, we put it in and then several years later, like it just sort of appeared everywhere. It was just climbing all up through this sifton bush and growing in really wet swampy areas that off you get in the pillica and also in the dry area. It was just 
they seem to fit everything. And it's such a long season variety, it uh, sort of gets going in the autumn, but you don't get a lot of production till the spring, and then it really bounces away. And if you get a year like we've had this year, which is quite wet and cool, like it will still be producing feed in January. It's staggering. And the other thing I like about it is that cattle spread it really easily. It's just it's, we sort of put it in sort of one 300-acre paddock and it's basically got all over our farm or over our lighter country in that time. We have sprinkled a little bit around from time to time, but it is an amazingly productive variety and it just doesn't get any airplay. And I, I'd like to buy more seed, but you just can't. It's just unsourceable. Slender Cerradella is different to your French Cerradellas and your yellow Cerradellas. It's probably more suited to even some of these really tough, tough sandy soils, waterlogged soils as well. What have you found to be the biggest benefit of it in your system? Especially on those very bare soils. Like it'll grow on quite acid country and it's such a good ground cover. It just crawls all over it. It's such a prolific seeder. Even the seeds are ground cover. There's just so much of it there. I think it's the most productive of all Cerradellas in my mind, I don't know why it doesn't get more airplay or why it's just seemed to have fallen off the radar by these commercial seed companies. And it's one of the field day I was trying to bully you guys and a few of those seed wholesalers. You've got to get this stuff going. There's money to be made here. <laughs> well, we'll see what we can do. It's probably the most productive on your country of all the Cerradellas. Do you use this as part of a mix? Yeah, sometimes it's called McFarland Cerradella, which is this old guy up at Narrabri, and he used to strip it somehow, and I used to go and buy bags of seed from him. Well, I can't find him anymore, and I'd like to buy more. And I think everyone should be growing it. That's why I'm trying to encourage yeah, some sort of production of it. But it'll be interesting to see if it does, or you've taken home a Woolworths bag full of it. So if you can get it going in trials and just see if it does grow everywhere else, perhaps it's just quite unique to our environment or that sort of pillica soils, maybe that's its home. I think it can make a lot of people very wealthy farmers in the future. Maybe in a generation we'll be calling it Harry Cerradella. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you get the best out of it, Harry? I think we probably should be liming this country because, you know, our pH is quite low. But, I mean, the other alternative is just grow varieties that are quite acid tolerant and you don't have to worry about the light. Certainly Consul and Digigrass, they grow, they're quite happy to grow in those soils. And, you know, if you've got something like this slender leaf Cerradella, it can be as productive as any other, your lighter country, they're growing clovers. And if you're going to all that great expense to buy lime and putting it on a tonne to the hectare, it adds up to a lot when you could just buy a bag of this slender leaf and solve all your issues. So it looks pretty magnificent. Even now in December, it's starting to dry off a bit, but as you'd expect with a winter annual, looking good in a wet season, how did it do in the drought? It'll germinate every year. You don't see a lot of things, but it certainly is there and you get a bit of ground cover and look, they do get a nibble at it and sometimes I wonder how, it's, if it's setting enough seed to germinate the next year because I just chew it into the ground, but it is such a prolific seeder. There's no worries. Once you've got it, you're never going to lose it. Just that hard-seeded nature of it is also a, a big help of why it's so resilient and persistent that it's just, while it might seem that every grain has come up, only probably 20 or 30% at the very most might have come up. So there's just so much in the seed bank. Yeah, yeah. And look, in dry times, it's very hard on those poorer soils to get any production. And this gives you an opportunity to get to at least a mouthful and of something green anyway. So you've mentioned it grows in well it's got a good system with 
Premier Digit and your console love grass, you've also got a lot of natives and plains grass and I saw some red grass and other things growing today. You've got a bit of an interesting system that on how you sow some of your tropical grasses. Do you mind just talking through that? Well, yes, on our uh, basalt soils, it's uh, in total madness. Forefathers tried to crop this country in years gone by. Like, and I, look, I think in the 60s and 70s when, you know, wheat was worth $100 a ton, if you get a ton to the acre, you know, $100 a ton, that was a lot of money. You could buy a new car for $800, so you didn't need a lot of tons to wheat to be profitable. But as time has gone on, you know, like wheat's probably only tripled in value in the last 50 years, so it's certainly not profitable anymore. So we do have a lot of old farming country that's sort of went back to native pastures a bit, and we just what we're doing now is just putting two knockdown sprays over that late winter, early spring. And knocking down with Roundup? No, just we'd normally put two litres of Roundup on and 500 ml of ester. And then we've got a, a rock hopper. I don't know how many people are familiar with that, but that was a machine that was produced probably 15 years ago. And we happened to get one from our neighbour when they sold up. And it's an amazing machine where it can just crawl over all these rocks and logs that we have here and uh, just cuts a little, little disc groove in the soil and it just sort of drops the seed in the groove and some of it sort of bounces out on the ground and it does take a fair bit to get that digit out of the ground. It does need sort of four or five days of really moist soil but the last couple of seasons have been fantastic for that and we've had some great success in getting digit going on basalt soils which is you know not always recommended for but once it gets going there's no better plant for that. Hopefully over the years to come we'll We'd nearly have all now all our farming country and now we're just hoping to we'll get over our hills and just see what we can do, just put little pockets of it in everywhere. Normally on sort of further west, maybe some more arable country, I'd really advise people to probably crop for several years to tidy things up. But it's fascinating to see what you guys have done here. You're obviously having a fair bit of success with just a single season of a knockdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does break a lot of rules. And I like I think, you know, the issues with it when you have if you do farm it and disturb that soil, you will get a lot of weeds come back. So our idea is just to knock these native grasses back enough for two or three months while this digit is getting established. And once it's got its roots down, it yeah, it takes a lot of killing after that. And then you just end up with a mix with, you know, you have your natives and probably 50% of it is digit grass. And it tends not to take over on your basalt soils as much as it does on lighter country. That's probably one of the problems of digit is that it gets too thick and stops those legumes from coming in. Yeah, that's right. If that black soil dries out, it'll just sit there, the digit, whereas those natives seem to be able to respond a little better to lighter falls. So it's good to have that mix. We might just move on to the moneymaker of the operation. You're running a F1 Wagyu and Angus operation, correct? Yeah, that's true. So what are the main things to get round your head or probably for advice for other producers compared to a standard beef breeder operation? Running Wagyu's, this F1 operation, does take a little bit more management skill, not a lot more, but you just got to be aware that you can't run, well, I know know people do, you run a commercial Angus herd beside your Wagyu's is really hard because there aren't too many fences that keep Wagyu bulls in. So you're then caught buying replacement Angus heifers every year but that's okay because your Wagyu cross heifers you sell make more than your purchase price for your Angus heifers. So you're always in the market every year looking for replacements. 
And also, you've got to have an outlet before you even start thinking about it. You've got to have somewhere to go because there is a very small market and it gets oversupplied really easily and undersupplied really easily. So it's quite a boutique market. So you've got to have a connection of where you're going to sell these cattle. And if you get caught in a dry time, you just can't put them in the sale yard like other cattle. You just can't offload them because you just get smashed. They are very specialised. They've got to go into a feedlot and be on feed for around that 400 days before you can sell them. And like the steers, our steers go to Japan on a boat and they're on feed for 540 days before they get slaughtered. So you're sort of in a network with your buyer. So we are suppliers to these people and they rely on us to supply cattle every year, particularly dealing with Japan. They like to have a very long connection with their suppliers. I can tell you a funny story that we had the Japanese come here probably it'll be seven or eight years ago now and they turned up and we talked a bit like we're talking now about our operation. Then they started asking me the history of our farm, how long we'd been on this farm, what our thoughts are for the future. And then they started talking to our son who was in year six at that time and they started asking him questions. So just meet these guys. We actually had a little pet kangaroo at the time who was bouncing around him, which was a big hit. And into other interesting fun fact, my wife is a school teacher and they praised her highly. Teachers in Japan are thought of very highly and they're sort of right up the society tree. If you're a school teacher, you're considered a very important person. But anyway, they started questioning our boy and after that sort of left or the conversation had finished, I asked uh, this Matt Edwards from Edwards Life where we sell our, who, who purchases our calves and he said, oh, look, I should have warned you. The Japanese, when they do business, they do business for a long time. And we're standing around the garden. He said, see those two guys standing under that tree over there? They've been doing business since 1795. One was a, owned a shop and the other one owned a little killing works in Japan in those times just to hang it up in a tree. And so now they are major retailers and an enormous abattoir chain. When you do business with Japan, it's like working for Toyota. You do it for a lifetime. And so they just wanted to make sure that if they're going to take our cattle, we're still going to be here in 100 years' time. And that's the, sort of the way that Wagyu industry works. You sort of can't be jumping ship in and out because you just will find no home for them. It's a long-term feeder option, but it's also a long-term business option. It is. Sometimes you can't get your cattle in to the feedlots when you want to because, you know, they get oversupplied and they do their best to accommodate you. You've just got to be patient and wait your turn. The return probably is... 30 or 40% more. But as I say, it's not for everyone. You've got to be prepared to work with your purchaser and be patient enough to just roll with the seasons. And more often than not, you're always getting a premium. But there are times when the Angus price is actually better than the Wagyu price. Sometimes they will set it 12 months in advance and sometimes six months in advance, they'll set the price. And there is no negotiation, there's no market fluctuations that's just going to be the price for the next six months so so do you sell your progeny as get them to a certain weight range or it's time or how do you decide when to sell the steer calves which go on in the boat japan they got to sort of leave the farm around 270 kilos remembering that the weight gain of a wagyu is not what it is of beef cattle so we generally weigh them at 300 kilos full weight and then by the time they get up to 
the quarantine feedlot in uh, just at Oakey. They're about the right weight. You get a per head rate of them. They, there's no cents per kilo for them. They just pay you per head. And I think this year it was around $2,700. But I know there's going to be a fall for next year. The next time the price comes out, it's going to be less than that. And they go into quarantine for three weeks and then they get on a boat and go to Japan, which takes 11 days. And then they go in quarantine in Japan. So by the time they actually get on the feed in Japan, they're probably only weighing about 230 kilos. And so they don't do any good on the boat and they don't do much good in quarantine either. They only want to just keep them ticking over. No, they're not trying to fatten them. And then the heifers, they go to a feedlot at Condamine called Lilyvale and you get a cents per rate for them, which is sort of somewhere between, say, $7 a kilo up to 8 or $9 a kilo. So it's good 2 or $3 a kilo, better than commercial angus. And then the current prices. Yeah. yeah. What sort of growth rates do you expect out of them? Are you an autumn or a spring calving here? Yeah, spring calving, and they're probably doing 0.8, 0.9 kilos a day maybe, hopefully, whereas your commercial cattle are probably doing 1, 1.1, 1.2. They tend to also be a lot more difficult to handle. They're very bad-behaved children when they are young, and as they get into adolescence, they actually tend to grow a brain and they're a bit easier to handle. Yeah, I often say you do need round paddocks when you run wagyus because they just all pile up in corners and jump fences and so there is a bit of skill in handling them they sound a bit belligerent maybe the goat of the beef industry are they yeah they are they, <laughs> there's no about that and the other trick is they are so fertile oh my god we actually spay all our heifers now because we just can't stop them getting in calf like they'll get in calf on their mother and the bulls are just they break all the rules of uh well, you ever knew about beef cattle, you know, testicle size and big rumps and these are just they're very small testicles, they're very athletic and they just turn up in the most amazing places and uh, so you've got all your heifers ready to go and you find a bull in them. So then you have to give them a prostaglandin to abort the calf before they get on the truck. It's, uh, yeah, as I say, it's yeah, good returns in it, but there is also a high degree of management. With your replacement heifers, do you see much better calving ease? With the Wagyus? Oh, without a doubt, yes. In fact, I don't even know where our calf puller is anymore. <laughs> Many years ago, we had Herefords and we used to wear calf pullers out. And then we sort of went to sort of a bonded Boss Indigas cross Hereford and that commercial cow. And yeah, we still pulled a few, but with Wagyus, they just slip them out. It is amazing. They're like just little cats when they come out. So is there anything in particular that you look for when you're buying your bulls? Well, that's the other thing. Our supplier... When we knew bulls, they work out our marbling scores and how things are going because it's all about marbling scores. It's nothing to do with the frame of the animal and they will supply us with the bulls that they think we need. And so you just say you want three bulls and they'll just turn up in a truck one day. So that does save you several days of year of work going around bull sales trying to purchase bulls. Do you get any feedback from the suppliers about how your animals are going and anything that you can improve on? Yeah, no, that's a constant. At least once a year we all go to Toowoomba and they give you your data on how things are going. They sort of want a marble score of around sort of six to seven. So if you're sort of up around Nimbits fall in between sort of four and eight and you're doing okay, it's a bit hard to sort of adjust anything here. It really is about the genetics of the bull and 
once they leave our place, they go to a feedlot. And then you know, like the feedlot actually has a lot of influence on the marble score, how they feed them. And even killing when they go to the abattoir, when they kill them, that can also, if they don't chill them the right slow enough at the right temperature, that can nearly knock a whole marble score off. A lot of people have influence on your final data. But I think, like, you know, if cattle get a bit of a setback, it does take a long time to turn wagyus around. And so you sort of got to just keep them constantly going and yeah, supplement, feed them when you have to, which is sort of about as all we can influence really. How long have you been uh, breeding wagyus for? Look, I think we started about 2007 or eight or something, something around there. Yeah, they'd been around for a while and I'd sort of toyed with the idea. And when we got involved, there really was no commercial outlet for your heifers. It was really only the steers. And that sort of slowly developed because most of the heifers now go into the high-end restaurant, hotel trade and export to Singapore Middle East markets with the steers, you know, they basically go to that Japanese market and mainly only the supermarket trade in Japan and because all their high-end stuff is full-blood wagyus, which the Japanese produce and a few Australian producers, they get exceptional marble scores and we have been to Japan. That's been there twice. You sort of have to go there and speak to the Japanese and look at what they're doing and they give you tours and talks. It is a real connection between supplier and processors and supermarkets. Theirs is a whole different eating experience compared to what we produce. What I've got from this conversation is just the relationship that you've got with the buyers and that it's a really long-term thing. Mate, for my final question, I like to ask, what do you think the big issue is in Australian agriculture at the moment? Well, there's quite a few issues, actually. Let's start with the price of land. There has been a real spike in land prices, and it's going to be a real issue in years to come in succession planning, in trying to get young people back onto the land when prices are so valuable, especially they've got a couple of siblings involved or there's a young bloke trying to start out, and that feeds in with the ageing workforce in the land the average age of a farmer gets a year older every year I don't know. <laughs> every year yeah. when I started out the average age of a farm was 50 now it's 65 or 6 or something I don't know what it is but better commodity prices and better seasons are amazed how many young people have come back on the land so there is some hope there I also think no, I am not one of these climate change sceptics I think that's a real thing but I think it's a real opportunity for farmers there's money to be made in climate change and we really can if they can find a way to get Carbon. Soil carbon or carbon yeah, accounting. Yeah, if we can yeah. sort of get some reward for soil carbon, laying down soil carbon, I think this is going to be yeah, just another source of income. Beauty, mate. I love to end on a positive note and I think that's a good one. So, Harry, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, well, thanks very much, Ryan. And hopefully we can maybe get Harry Serradella in the botanical books maybe. Yes, that's <laughs> it. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Nerily Brennan, 
and I'll chat to you next time.